Thanks, Karen, for reading. Morning, everybody. My name's Ben, the pastor here. And um, it's great, isn't it, having Kate back leading the service. Thank you very much. And Kate's given us a great introduction uh, to the passage and theme of today. I don't feel like I really need to say that much. Um, but great also to hear from Lindsay, very encouraging. And really, in uh, this morning's talk, we're thinking about the God who answers prayer as uh, Lindsay shared with us. It is a great story, isn't it, that we've just had read. don't know if you had kind of come across this story before, uh, but if you weren't familiar with the character of Jehoshaphat, he is a bit of a legend, isn't he? And a great example for us, especially in terms of leadership. Uh, we're going to look at the story under three headings, and then I'll share some reflections in terms of application for us here at Barney's. So three headings. Firstly, an alarming challenge. Secondly, a confident prayer. Thirdly, an amazing outcome. Firstly, an alarming challenge. Have a look again at verses 1 and 2. And I'll encourage you to get the passage up on your phone or in your Bible. Verses 1 and 2. Well done, Kevin, with all the names. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites with some of the Muonites came to wage war against Jehoshaphat. Some people came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the Red Sea. It is already in Hazazon Tamar, that is En Gedi. Now, if you don't know where those places are, I haven't got a map for you, I'm afraid, but basically they're saying, they're coming, this vast army, it's coming and they're getting close. How does Jehoshaphat respond? Verse 3, alarmed. He was alarmed. Literally, he was afraid. The New Living Translation says, Then, terrified, Jehoshaphat uh, went on. It is refreshing, I think, that this king of Israel responds in a normal way. Now, he's clearly a man of faith. You see that in his prayer. He prays with great confidence. But that doesn't mean that he's immune to fear. When he hears this news, he's alarmed, he's afraid, he's terrified. Because he recognizes that in themselves, he and the people of Israel have no hope of surviving this coming challenge. You see that in what he says at the end of his prayer, verse 12. He says, our God, uh, we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. He makes a true assessment of the threat. He is honest about the size of the challenge that they face. He acknowledges his weakness the powerlessness of the people. We have no power to face this vast army. As we consider plans for Barney's, we need to make an honest assessment of where we're at. We need to acknowledge our weakness, our vulnerability, our fear. It's been a tough year and a bit for us as a church. COVID, my extended leave that then got extended, having a locum uh, see us through, me returning part-time but still recovering, uh, and a number of uh, people who were core to our church leaving over the last 12 months. I feel weak, the church feels small, maybe you're wondering if the writing is on the wall and we need to shut the doors. Maybe you feel fearful as you look to the future. It's good to acknowledge those things to make a true, honest assessment of where we're at, how we feel, the fears that we have. And we'll have an opportunity in our meeting later to just share how we're all going. Firstly, an alarming challenge. 
Jehoshaphat was afraid. Secondly, a confident prayer. The really striking thing about Jehoshaphat is what he does next. See, when we're afraid, when we face an overwhelming challenge, what do we do next? For me, I typically do one of two things. Either I run away, I withdraw, try to avoid it and bury my head in the sands, or I kind of go into hyperdrive and I try and fix it myself. What does Jehoshaphat do? Verse 3, he's alarmed, but then we're told, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord. The ESV says, then Jehoshaphat was afraid and he set his face to seek the Lord. He set his face to seek the Lord. And not just him, he calls all the people of Israel to fast and to pray to seek the Lord together. Verse 4, the people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. Verse 5, Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in front of the new courtyard. It's so striking, isn't it? When Jehoshaphat faces this great threat, this alarming challenge, he doesn't go into the war room to strategize about how they're going to defend themselves. He, he doesn't go to seek advice from, uh, from his counselors. He doesn't send to the surrounding nations to get military support. No, he goes to the temple to pray. We all know that's the right response, don't we, to challenge, to threats. But so often, if you're anything like me, we bypass God in order to try and sort it out ourselves or seek help and support from others. Now, those aren't bad things to do. You know, think and plan and seek help and advice. They're not bad things to do, but they're not the first thing to do. Jehoshaphat clearly believes that God is real. That God is the God who hears our prayers. That God is the God who will answer and will help. His prayer is full of truth about who God is and what God has done in the past and what God has promised for the present. Did you see that in the prayer? Who God is, verse 6. Lord, the God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand and no one can withstand you. That's who God is. That's a God worth praying to, isn't it? Then what God has done in the past, verses 7 and 8. Our God, or even verse 7, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friends? And then what he has promised for the present, verse 8 and 9. They have lived in it and built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress and you will hear us and you will save us. That's not the people being presumptuous. That's what God had promised to do. And then Jehoshaphat lays out the present situation, verse 10. Now here are men from 
Ammon, Moab, Mount Seir, whose territory you wouldn't allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt, so they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance. And then verse 12, here's, here's the request, here's the plea. Verse 12, our God, will you not judge them? Will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Our hope is in you. Our confidence is in you. Jehoshaphat's prayer is a prayer of humble confidence. As I've already said, he, he acknowledges his weakness, vulnerability, powerlessness, but he's full of confidence. Confidence in God's power and God's promises. Jehoshaphat shows, I think, a model response to weakness in the face of overwhelming challenge. He doesn't allow his weakness and the challenge he faces to lead him to despair, but to prayer. That is often actually God's purpose in allowing us to experience and feel our weakness. He does it to drive us to a deeper dependence on him. One of the Bible verses that's uh, been really formational uh, in my life comes at the beginning of 2 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul writes about the pressures that he and his co-workers had faced. He says, chapter 1, verse 8, we do not want you to, you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But then he says, this happened so that... In other words, God allowed Paul to, to face all these pressures, this overwhelming uh, pressure, so that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. See, the real question is not how weak you are or how weak you feel. There's nothing particularly virtuous about feeling weak. The real question is, who are you trusting in? You can feel incredibly weak and still be trusting in yourself and trying to fix things and deliver yourself. If we feel weak at Barney's at the moment, that's good. It's good if it drives us to a deeper dependence on God. If it releases us from any pride or confidence in ourselves and drives us to a greater confidence in our almighty God. So an alarming challenge, a confident prayer. Thirdly, an amazing outcome. We'll look at this briefly. Uh, verse 13, all the men of Judah with their wives and children and little ones stood there before the Lord. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jehaziel, who was from other people. Verse 15, he said, listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army. 
for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, march down against them. They'll be climbing up the pass of Ziz, and you'll find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jerul. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your position, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. And Jehoshaphat and the people respond to that message in worship and praise of God. The next day, Jehoshaphat encourages the people to trust in the Lord and what he's promised. And then he arranges, it's very strange, he arranges for a choir to lead the army out. Verse 22. As they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. The Ammonites and Moabites rose up against the men of Mount Seir to destroy and annihilate them. After they finished slaughtering the men of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. So basically, God does it and causes the enemies to fight each other and destroy each other. And so, verse 24, when the men of Judah came to the place that overlooks the desert and they looked towards the vast army, all they saw were dead bodies lying on the ground. No one had escaped. And it takes them three days just to gather up the plunder of the army that God has defeated for them. What was the result? Verse 29, the fear of God came on all the surrounding kingdoms when they heard how the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. And the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace, for his God had given him rest on every side. An amazing outcome. They didn't even have to fight. And they're so confident of the victory that God promised that even before they see that victory, they're singing God's praise. A choir leads them into battle. A battle they don't even have to fight. We don't know the details of how our lives are going to play out in the next days, weeks, months, or years. We don't have success guaranteed at every point. In fact, we're promised trouble and persecution and suffering. But we do know how the story ends. If we're Christ's, we know what the final outcome will be. God wins. Jesus wins. Satan will be defeated. Death will be swallowed up. Sin will be no more. God will save his chosen people. The gospel cause will triumph. And our bodies will be raised and the creation will be renewed and paradise will be restored. We know how the story ends. Final victory is guaranteed. And like Jehoshaphat and the people back then, we can celebrate that victory even now before we see it. We can sing with the New Testament writers. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or Romans 8, which we sung a bit of. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or Hebrews 13, God has said, never will I leave you, 
never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? An alarming challenge, a confident prayer, an amazing outcome that we can celebrate. Three reflections as we finish. Firstly, God loves to work in our weakness. God loves to work in weakness because it reveals his power and because it refines our faith. You see that throughout the Bible, don't you? Think of Abraham and Sarah, childless, well beyond the age of childbearing, yet God promises them a son and shows that nothing is impossible for God. Think of Gideon, remember him? Gideon who is called to lead Israel and he faces the vast army of the Midianites. And God strips Gideon's army down from 32,000 to 300. And he tells him why. He says to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved, saved me. God loves to work through weakness because it reveals his power and refines our faith. Think of the young virgin Mary, the ragtag bunch of disciples. Think of the Lord Jesus himself, born in obscurity, lived in humility, died in shame and weakness. Yet it's through his death he accomplishes the great victory, rises triumphantly, The Lord Jesus says to the Apostle Paul, my power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, that's when I'm strong. For Barney's, it's been a rough year. Maybe we're feeling weak. That's not a bad thing. Not a bad thing if it leads us to prayerful dependence on God. The danger is that we focus on our weakness and we get discouraged and we give up. I believe that this moment for us is an opportunity. An opportunity to renew our confidence in God, the God who hears and answers prayer, to refocus our attention on who God is, what is true of him, and what he has promised to us. God loves to work in our weakness. Secondly, the call to mission remains. I'm not sure this comes directly out of the passage, but the call to mission remains. It's easy when you're feeling vulnerable to look inward and focus on survival. But if we were to do that, we would be ignoring one of the most important parts of our identity and purpose as God's people. We may not have many people compared to others, but we are all still missionary people. A couple of weeks ago was the 150th celebration of the coming of the light. It's an annual celebration of the arrival of Christian missionaries into the Torres Strait Islands. And it had such a profound impact on the islanders. The Archbishop 
uh, of Adelaide, Jeff Smith, was due to preach at the celebration. He wasn't able to go due to uh, travel restrictions, but he shared some reflections in a pastoral letter to, uh, to the clergy at the time. He says, The missionaries were from the London Missionary Society. They had been working in New Caledonia, but they were ejected by the French government there. However, instead of withdrawing, the London Missionary Society decided to expand and sent the missionaries to the Torres Strait where they landed on Arab. I find it really interesting that in the face of very significant difficulty, the London Missionary Society decided to expand, not withdraw. And I've been pondering what that might say to us. There is no doubt that Christianity is being squeezed out of a place of influence in our society. But the question is, how should we respond? I doubt that the best responses are clamoring for a return to the good old days, but I'm pretty sure withdrawal is not the way either. We have been commissioned to share in the mission of God, and that mission clearly isn't finished yet. It seems to me that as we live in the circumstances of 2021, our future as the Christian church in Australia is not immediately clear, but we can be prepared to be led by the Holy Spirit to whatever God is leading us. This will require a commitment to God's mission and its ongoing importance, expansion, not withdrawal. It will also require trust on our part, trust in God whose mission we share and a real tangible dependence on the Holy Spirit. There were lots of unknowns for those missionaries heading west, but they were faithful to their call and God was faithful in leading and equipping them and the results were clear. There were lots of unknowns for us also, May we too be faithful to our call and trust the Lord to lead us as we seek to discern the way we need to go into the future as God's church here in Adelaide. I think it's great that on the day when we're kind of taking stock of where we're at and thinking about our future as a church, we're sending Christy out to serve the gospel in Southeast Asia. You know, it, it might have been easy to say, Christy, you can't go. We need you here. You have to stay. But we don't want to do that. We want to joyfully send her out on mission. And for us who remain, we need to remember that we too are a sent people. Each one of us has been sent into this world as a witness to the Lord Jesus. It doesn't matter at the end of the day what the size of the church is. Mission and evangelism are central to who we are and what we're called to do. What that looks like for us as a church will look different to other churches, but we, and we may need to adjust our plans, but the priority and the call of mission remains. Finally, this passage in 2 Chronicles 20, if nothing else, is a call to prayer, isn't it? A call to honest, humble, confident prayer. Uh, I've asked you in my email over the last few weeks to, to think about your capacity, to think about priorities for the church. Well, our first priority is and always must be to pray. And if we have capacity for nothing else, let's make sure we have capacity to pray. Often, I think we... we we can think that prayer is something that's just going to fit in around everything else. But if we're really committed to prayer, then it requires time and discipline and energy. 
it might mean not doing something else so that you can pray. Charles Spurgeon said, whenever God determines to do a great work, he first sets his people to pray. I don't know what that's going to look like for us. I'd love us, each one of us, to be praying for growth. Praying as individuals and as couples. Praying for Barney's, praying for growth. Praying as families, for the people that we know to come to faith in Christ. As DNA and Bible study groups, as gospel communities. Praying that we'd realize our, our vision of being a church that's helping many people to become and grow as followers of Jesus. Praying as a church on Sundays and in our church prayer meetings. I'll say later in our meeting, but, but I think this needs to be our focus. It's easy to say prayer is important. I'm sure we'd all say, yes, I agree, prayer is a priority. Let's make sure we genuinely live that out. I want to lead us in prayer, but I don't want it all to come from me. You look back to the revivals of the past, and they've always been preceded by earnest, committed prayer. People meeting regularly to pray for God to work and act in power. And usually that prayer was initiated by lay people, not clergy, not church leaders, but ordinary Christians who had a burden for the spiritual needs of their nation and called out to God to bring renewal. So let me lead us in prayer now and I'm going to give us a bit of time to just reflect in our own hearts and to consider what the Lord is calling each of us to. Lord God, are you not the God in heaven? Are you not the God who rules over the kingdoms of the nations? We are weak and powerless, but power and might are in your hands. Thank you that you love to hear our prayers. Thank you that you, you've chosen to use our prayers to accomplish your plans and thank you that you've revealed those plans to us to bring all things together under the Lordship of Christ. So we pray, revive us, renew us, give us a renewed hunger for Christ, give us a renewed passion to see the lost saved, impress upon us our dependence on you and stir us to be a prayerful people. Help us to pray with honesty and humility and with great confidence. As we meet together as a church a bit later today, fill us with your spirit. Give us wisdom and courage and love.
And if you'd like to, why not join in with me in the words of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial and deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours for and forever. Amen.